1: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. This is episode 356. Uh, Today we have Dr. Fesco with us again, and technically speaking, and then Dr. Tasha Chapman from Covenant Seminary will be joining us talking about good small group questions. And, uh, Scott Bird and Tree Triolo will be in on that interview as well. And just so you know, if you're a parent listening, um, those small group questions will be helpful for engaging your own children in the home. So stay tuned uh, for that. Uh, Right now, I have Tree with me. Tree, how's it going?
2: Doing well, John. Good to see you.
1: Good to see you too. And uh, just for our listeners, Tree assured me that his uh, phone is not going to go off while we're having this discussion. <laughs> I had to pick on you just a little bit. <laughs> Unlike
2: last time when it happened twice.
1: <laughs> well, was it your phone or was it like Slack or something like that?
2: It was my computer. I turned off the notifications on my phone, but my my computer was notifying mm-hmm. me of something.
1: It it happens to all of us. I know it's happened to me. So, yeah, no worries there. Um, those who listen to the podcast know that we're talking about essentials of a youth retreat. Uh, so tree, I would love to know what's an essential of a youth retreat for you.
2: Yeah, there've been so many good ones that have been shared recently. I think the one about sleep was so good and I greatly appreciated that. Uh, I was thinking about what is an essential of a youth retreat. And one of the things that I have always really appreciated and loved about my time on retreats is the intentional time. Uh, usually if this is like a weekend retreat, this is the Saturday afternoon. Uh, if it's a week-long trip, it's just those times during the the days that you set aside to just be with students and not have any sort of thing sp- specific that you're trying to accomplish. like
1: mm-hmm.
2: Sitting down and playing a card game with a student or you know, we, we just started playing this game called Hey Robot, and mm. we don't actually own it, but but it's, you essentially just have a bunch of words written down, and your goal is to get Alexa to say the word by asking her questions, and our students <laughs> love it. Um, so just being able to sit down and, and around a table and just hang out is so good for students because they need that time to just relax mm-hmm. and chill. And the teaching and the worship is is, is great, and it's wonderful, and it's necessary but I think there's so much relational capital that's built in times like that when we're playing a game like that. Or uh, another game we like to play is where you write the the name of a character down on a piece of paper and you pass it to the right and then they have to stick it to their forehead and they've got, mm-hmm. you know, 10 questions to, to ask to figure out who they are. Uh, just that intentional time of just relaxing and being together, especially if it's around a table, I think is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like that that builds a lot of relational capital that translates way further past the retreat itself.
1: Absolutely. No, and I think you just nailed it right there. That relational capital. Um, that that's why we're we're doing it, right? And and I love, yeah, just retreats. It gives you that margin. You know, it's like if you have a Wednesday night program, they're showing up, but they've got to typically rush home and do homework, or some of them maybe should be rushing home to do homework. <laughs> um, but but the retreats just allow you to kind of have that margin to sit down and to to play games and and like you said, I like how you phrase it, just intentional time. Um, for the youth worker to see, Hey, look, you know, and as you just said, it's typically Saturday afternoon, you know, on those weekend retreats. And that for me is about the time when I was thinking about quitting, um, (laughs) because it's, you're so exhausted on a Saturday afternoon, but to think, okay, look, I could go back and maybe lay down in the bunk room for a little while, but let me be intentional and sit down with these students and, and play a game. So that's, that's a good word tree. Um, anything else out of that before we break to technically speaking?
2: Yeah, I think being able to, after the retreat, tap into that, I think is also important. So Mm -hmm. if you get time with a student that you just normally didn't get time with, like follow up on that Mm -hmm. and make sure that that doesn't become this isolated thing for them. Um, I can think of so many students that, you know, yeah, they come every now and then they're slightly involved, but that that time spent on that weekend of them actually interacting with, with me or with other people meant the world to them. That, and that meant the world, the world to me as a student mm-hmm. when I was in youth ministry and it, it definitely changed. It was a game changer for me. Like I, I definitely became more involved, became more, uh, or my, my desire to, to be there grew. And, uh, I just think that we tend to downplay those moments. I think we should, we should highlight them and, and elevate them and, and follow up on them as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's really good. And, and it is just surprising how how the Lord can use those seemingly insignificant moments uh, just for, for kingdom purposes. I know uh, we could give testimony of that in our own lives of people who do that with us, but then uh, with those students that we've connected with. So uh, thanks for sharing that tree. Uh, for now, we have um, Dr. Fesco joining us again for Technically Speaking. Here he is. All right, everyone, we are back with Dr. Fesco. Um, last week, if you tuned in, we're talking about his book, The Christian and Technology. And I believe I forgot to say this is through Evangelical Press. Um, you can pick it up, obviously, at Amazon um, as we're talking about all the advancements in technology. I'm sure people are familiar with, with Amazon. Um, Dr. Fesco, last week we were kind of ending and talking about a few things to to potentially do to be a little more discerning in using our technology. Um, And, you know, you begin the book just talking about the subtle natures of our idolatry. And I love this this line that you say, um, you know, as we're, we're trying to manage our idolatry, you say uh, we can often simply be highly functional screen addicts who simply just manage our addiction and that we've got to be careful to, to get into the, the root of some of these issues and kind of dig down into the heart and not just kind of put up a bunch of uh, practices in place that, that really aren't um, helping us fight against that addiction. So I'd love for you just to kind of elaborate on that a little bit, if you would.
0: Sure. You know, it's like I, I found this one book and I forget the author, though. The book is cited uh, in, in the book that I wrote that uh, it's like a 12 step program for, you know, getting an, unaddicted from technology. And I thought, holy smokes. And there have been uh, other books that have been written. There's one called uh, 10. I think it's 10 reasons why to delete all your social media accounts. And this guy was a Silicon Valley insider. Mm-hmm. And then he says, for example, the like button, the like button. Uh, on social media was designed on the same principles uh, as the slot machines in Vegas. Uh, And then the same type of chemical reaction in the brain where you get a hit of dopamine when you win at the slot machine is the same kind of thing that you get uh, on say social media, which is why say if a young teenage girl puts up a picture on Instagram and doesn't get a sufficient amount of likes, she doesn't get her dopamine hit, and then that means that she uh, feels depressed. And there are high levels of depression among young adolescent girls uh, because they're they're on social media and it's not turning out like they hope, it's not giving them the high that they want. When my friend got 200 likes, why did I only get five? Uh, And so the question is, is how do we kind of counter all of this well, the, the first thing I want to say is, is you know, I'd say, uh, how long can you go without your technology before you start getting the Jimmy leg, so to speak, and it's like you start, you know, nervously shaking or what have you. So like the wife and I will, we'll go to a, a party or something like that or a function for church. And I'll specifically say, I'm leaving my phone in the car. Uh, that way, I don't have it on me. And I can't, I can't look at it. Um, you know, same thing. One of the habits sometimes that we have is that we don't realize the, the 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 destructive, self-destructive loop that's in this. But the the light on a screen can keep you awake and keeps you awake. And yeah, they've now got blue light filters to try to counter this. But um, what I say is that in the middle of the night, when you wake up, are you tempted to go look at your phone to check tweets, you know, to check social media activity, to check the internet? And I say, if necessary. Put your phone in the kitchen at night to charge it up, and you know don't 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 use it at night. And then people say, "Well, it's my alarm clock." Well, get a dumb alarm clock. And by dumb alarm clock, I mean you know an alarm clock that is not a smart alarm clock. In other words, just you know the kind that makes the annoying noise. Get that if you need to. Um, you know, so in other words, distance yourself. You know, y- y- we've always joked about the, the the addict's line, "I can quit any time." Uh, you know, I can quit any time. Well, ask yourself, can you? Can you really? Can you go a day without it? Uh, just leave it at home. Uh, you know, that, that I think is, is an important thing. Can you go a, a day without social media? Here's another one. This is going to be, this is a tough uphill climb. This is a tough uphill climb. I cannot tell you when I will allow my children to have social media accounts, but I know right now they don't have them and I don't want them to have them. And I tell them, uh, you know, dad, you have a social media account. Yeah, it's for work. And if you look at my, my activity, say, look on Twitter, I'm using Twitter. Uh, Twitter's not using me. I like nothing on Twitter. I like next to nothing on Twitter. I mean, I, I would, ch- I, you know, I would challenge anybody to find five things that I've actually said like to, and it would probably come up to five things over the last, you know, four years that I've been on, on Twitter. I deleted my Instagram account. I thought to myself, I wasn't sure of my motives as to why I was using it. And I thought, am I just using this to to show people the things that I do and the things that I have? And am I just showboating? So I thought, you know what? I don't need it. I I deleted it. And so I can tell my son, I don't have an Instagram account. I don't think you need one either.
3: Um, Can you tell us how, sorry, can you tell us how old your kids are?
0: Yeah, my three children. I've got a 14-year-old today which I'm not sure when this will air, but today it's, uh, you know, he's turning 12. My second my second child is 12. And then my daughter is uh, eight. And um, like I said, I, I don't have any, it's not until you turn 18, but um, I will keep them off of social media as long as I can and as much as possible. And so what I'll do is on Twitter, for example, I just put positive quotes up. When people make critical comments, I don't engage it. Uh, I just ignore it, um, and then I'll put up announcements that hey, I'll be you know I'll be uh, speaking at this event, or here's the latest book that I read, or here's a here's a thoughtful verse. So I don't use Twitter the way that it was designed, uh, you know. So uh, you know it's it's kind of like the technology of the frying pan, in that uh, you know before they were probably like how are we gonna cook our, our our meat, you know I don't know why don't we take this piece of iron here and Put this into the fire and then we can take it off of the fire. Hey, this is a brilliant invention. You're a genius. Um, that's great if you use it right and with the big oven mitts. If you use it incorrectly and improperly and you try to embrace that frying pan when it's scalding hot right off of the off of the stove, mm-hmm. it's going to do serious damage to you. Well, that's the way you, we need to be with all of these technologies is what's, what's the good way to use it? How can I use it so that it's beneficial to me and to others? And what are the things that people are doing with it? Uh, you know, when you're talking about social media and the addictiveness, this is statistically verifiable, scientifically verifiable, it is as addictive as heroin hmm. and it produces the same physiological, uh, you know, impact upon our bodies as heroin. Uh, so. If you're in a, in a party and you got to grab your phone in the middle of the party, if you're sitting at a table eating and you can't avoid looking at your phone, or you're getting ghost buzzes in in your muscles where you think hey, I think my phone just buzzed, and you get twitches like that, and there's no there's no there's no notification on the phone, then you're addicted. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've done, say, on my phone is I've turned off all my notifications, with the exception of texting, because I need to know when the wife is texting me, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, she gets a pass. She gets a whole pass, (laughs) but I've turned off all the notifications on my computer so that I have to physically look at email to see if an email comes in. I don't get an audible noise that comes in. And that's so that I don't get distracted and so that I don't get addicted. Uh, and so that hopefully, again, I can use the technology and the technology doesn't, you know, use me or adversely affect me. But even then, I suspect that there are probably negative things that have happened to my physiology because of it. And if I can become aware of it, then I'll do what I can to mitigate it or eliminate.
1: It. Yeah. No. T- talking about addiction, I mean, I know there was a time where people used to push back and say, oh, that word's too strong. But I think <laughs> we've uh, definitely moved on past that and said, no, this uh, addiction is a- an appropriate word. Um, look, I'd love to go back to just talking about your, your your children a little bit and being cautious about exposing them to social media. And please push back, talking about your family. I, I don't want oh, you to, to share no, more no than you. Yeah. Um, I remember we had Russell Moore on this podcast, and he was the, the first – parent I heard say this because I'd heard parents prior to say, look, we need to introduce social media while they're in the home and we can kind of come alongside them and teach them. Russell Moore said, he does not allow his children to have social media at all. And I think he even said a smartphone until they you know, leave for college. And he just said he thinks these years are too important for them to waste kind of on their devices. And he said they received that with, with joy that he's able to talk to them about that. And so I'd love for you just to, to speak to that kind of that balance of when to let children be exposed in the home and try to come alongside them. Just please react to that and let us hear some of your thoughts. I think that, I'm not an expert on this subject, and so
0: I, I don't feel like I'm even an expert parent with my children. Every year, it's a new year, and it's undiscovered territory. I've My son is 14. I've never parented a 15-year-old yet, so that's going to be, you know, unplowed ground there, but that being said, you know, at least as in the, in the materials that I've researched and read, I'd say that when children are very young, say, maybe beneath the age of 10, I think you have to be extremely cautious with the use of technology because it is so transformative to the to the brain, what they call neuroplasticity, that you can really impede your children's ability to say, to read, for example. And uh, that they, you know, or one of the things that you're always doing is you you're teaching them that life has to always be exciting. There always has to be a screen on. There always has to be explosions going off. There have to be bright pictures, moving pictures, et cetera. And one of the things I love is that boredom is the womb of creativity and imagination. It's okay to be bored. And, you know, it's like when my kids sometimes say this, and my wife is good about this, I'm bored. It's like, well, go outside and, you know, go build something. Or, you know, you can't do this one these days. But when I was a kid, go blow something up, you know. (laughs) It's like, but we don't advocate uh, anything that would harm anybody, you know, so boredom is okay. That's fine. It's not a problem to be bored. Um, But then you just have to gauge, I think the child's level of maturity, how well can, can they handle, you know, a particular technology. And then if, um, you know, if they, if they uh, have problems, then you got to deal firmly with it. Uh, And so it's like, I, I had a child, I will not say which one who was sneaking a screen into his room because we said no screens are allowed in your rooms. You got to stay in a public place in, in the, you know, in the house, meaning in the kitchen or in the family room. And at night we go to bed and the next thing we know, hey, what are you doing with that? Uh, and so we gave them a warning. And then after the warning, it was the rule was broken again. So I was like, all right, you've lost the device. It's gone. You know, you, you don't have it anymore. It is no longer your possession. Um, and there was some some upset feelings to say the least, but this child has now not really seen a need for it back. You know, so in other words, sometimes we think what the child absolutely has to have or what the child thinks he or she absolutely has to have is not, they don't need it. Um, You know, it's like, I I jokingly call myself a digital immigrant. You know, I was born in the 70s. And so I, I grew up, as my middle son would say, in the 1900s. Um, And we didn't have any of this technology. So we were outside, you know, building stuff, riding our bikes, you know, playing ball. And yes, blowing stuff up, burning stuff down, you know, (laughs) doing things that we probably weren't supposed to be doing. But um, all of that is to say is that my son made the observation, dad, I think I can tell when somebody uses screens too much, they kind of look weak and pale. <laughs> kind of gone. You know, I think I you know. just
3: described me. So I'll <laughs> take offense to that.
0: He's just like, I, I don't want to be like that. I want to be able to run from point A to point B without running out of breath. I'm like, all right, well, you know, put the screen down and let's uh, let's get outside. So, uh, you know, it's a constant, it's, it's, it's never should a parent think, oh, I fixed this problem. It's done with, I can ignore it now. Until they move out and even beyond, it's a continual daily battle. You want to be looking at it because this is the way I look at it. I told my children this back in when I was a kid. If you told my parents, we're going to open a window in your house and any old person off the street can come to this window and secretly start talking to your kids about anything that they want hmm. and you won't know what they're saying. Most parents would have said, are you nuts? Absolutely not. Well, that's what our devices are. These things are open windows. And when you look at things, I don't touch upon this on the, on the, in the book, but you know, uh, gender dysphoria is chiefly uh, a, 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 a thing that happens to young adolescent girls who are on social media. This is a social media phenomenon. They get to watching YouTube videos and stuff. And all of a sudden they get sucked into this. You know, if you don't know what your child is watching, you, you need to be concerned and you need to begin, you know, monitoring your child. And this is one thing that probably will make the skin of some parents crawl and and make a lot of kids that are listening upset. But we tell our kids when we say, Hey, let me see your device. I want to check your texts. Well, hey, those are my texts. It's like, no, they're not. They're my texts too. Anything that comes across this internet connection is 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 open game for me to look at. Uh, so we check it on a regular basis just to see what's going on, uh, because we we want to make sure. Hey, you may not have the maturity to deal with certain subjects and certain things because you know one of the chapters I talk about in the book is unfettered access to evil. There is so much evil just a few keystrokes away. And kids these days know how to get past, you know, uh, firewalls and and all, all of the kind of devices. It's like it, it's just crazy. So, uh, yeah, in a nutshell, that's that's kind of some of the ways that I would I would encourage folks to handle some of these things.
3: So what would you say to uh, a parent who is is trying to, to to do that, hold off on social media and uh, smartphone and all that for as long as possible and and their kid really is going to miss out? on a lot of things. I don't know if your kids have experienced that, but, you know, when the whole group is talking on Snapchat and they're left out, when the whole group is on the, you know, iMessage or whatever, yeah. uh, they're going to be left out. Uh, how would you kind of help parents with, with that aspect of it?
0: Yeah. Um, in one sense, FOMO is overrated. Fear of missing out. FOMO is overrated. Maybe they're going to miss out on some things. But on the other hand, if you take positive steps to create other opportunities and other other scenarios where your kids can connect with people, uh, that's going to be, I think, one of the ways to counteract that. And and this is not to say the only answer is no access whatsoever to social media. You definitely need to be wise about, you know, like Solomon and, and the baby, you know, how do you figure out? The, who the baby belongs to. It takes wisdom, and it's like my wife says this, uh, pray yes prayers. Pray the prayers that God will say yes to, and what is one of those prayers? God, give me wisdom. He promises us. He'll give it to us, so in other words, <clears throat> it takes wisdom to know, can my child handle this, and maybe they can, <clears throat> but as you give them access to some form of social media, um, monitor them. Make sure, look over their shoulder. Make sure that they're not doing anything they shouldn't be doing, But then if you determine, okay, they shouldn't they shouldn't uh, they shouldn't use this, create other opportunities for them and do this anyway. Connect with people at your church. Hey, why don't we invite a bunch of your friends over, you know, and you guys can hang out or, uh, you know, maybe watch a movie or, you know, why don't you guys get together? It's like my kids, my boys, they love playing airsoft, which I'm like, this is great. Shoot each other you know uh and and it's actually a great thing because it teaches them teamwork uh when kids get hurt because hey you just shot me that really hurts they learn sympathy and empathy and self control you know so get outside and and do those things get together with your friends um or hey get a job now obviously for some kids this is not going to be possible but they're too young but why don't you go and earn some money save up some money get some stuff for you know money for college And you can also give to the church, you know, that missionary that you heard talking at church, you know, that's something that you can contribute to. In other words, what technology often is geared towards is self and serving me. But if you can get them to thinking about how can you serve somebody else? How can you get out and enjoy God's good creation? How can you connect with the body of Christ physically, you know, and if you want, hey, I'll take you to uh Starbucks and you can connect with your friends there and just spend some time. You don't want to get addicted to coffee. That's a whole nother subject. <laughs> we won't talk about that. Uh, you know, I am on my high perch that I, I don't drink coffee. So I could look down upon, you know, my holy, my holy perch upon everybody else that does. But um, yeah, I mean, connect with the body of Christ, connect with the world, uh, connect with people and create those opportunities to do so.
1: Yeah, they, like there's so much uh, good stuff that you're you're saying here. Um, like we we need to go ahead and break for today, but I'm glad you're going to be back with us next week to to talk more about this. Great, looking forward to it. Today, I welcome Dr. Tasha Chapman back to the podcast. She has been with Covenant Seminary since 2002. Uh, she has co-authored the Politics of Ministry. Navigating power dynamics and negotiating interests, and resilient ministry. What pastors told us about surviving and thriving. Uh, She also contributed to the ESV Women's Devotional Bible. Dr. Chapman, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here, John. It's it's good to have you. I know we were talking a little bit pre-recording. I had to uh, go back and search. Uh, You were on episodes one fifty one to one fifty five. those who listen may remember when we used to do um, five uh, different uh, episodes that would air Monday through Friday, and so Dr. Chapman was a part of of those. And I will definitely encourage everyone to go back in our archives and, and check those out. Those were very helpful, and um, it's good to have you. Good to have you back on. Yeah, glad to be here. This is a topic that I just have a lot of passion about,
4: um, and work with with. Um, People in every category mm-hmm. of ministry. So,
1: yeah, well, we appreciate it. Well, th- those who um, listen to know Greg Meyer uh, was on our podcast not too long ago. I cannot remember which episode. But uh, Greg recommended that we we get you back on because he had you uh, come and meet with his youth staff to talk about leading a small group. And so that will be the, the focus of our conversation today is um, asking good questions in small groups. And let me just say from the outset to our listeners, we know that many who tune into this podcast um, are parents and they are not youth workers um, in the official sense. We know parents can be youth workers. Um But, uh, we, we know that this discussion, this will apply for, for the household as well. Um, so those who are parents, just uh, as we're talking about questions, just know these are questions you can ask at the dinner table as you're driving down the road with your, your children. Um, so we know that this will be beneficial, um, for those as well. And and I do have to say this too. It's, uh, I'm I'm a little paranoid of us asking you questions in this interview because we're we're analyzing how we ask questions and how to ask good questions. So feel free to correct us as we go along of John, here's a better way to ask what you just what you just asked. <laughs> yeah, that'd so be fun. double dipping. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, and so as we we get into just kind of educational styles too, maybe kind of broadly as we're getting into small groups, maybe Help us think a little bit about large groups versus small groups. We know some of those who are listening are maybe more prone to large groups. Um, Some may be prone to to small groups. Some youth groups might just have five students, and so they're always having a small group. But um, what what are some advantages of kind of getting more into a small group setting as opposed to a large group?
4: Right. So the larger the group, and especially as soon as we get over about eight eight to 10 people, uh, the more we can hide. The more we can disengage, the more we don't have the accountability um, to have to engage in the relationships and in the context that's being talked about, in the content that's being talked about. Um, and so just that accountability is a huge piece. And of course, the fellow part of that, you know, is trust. Um, and so having the relational trust and being able to build that to do the hard work of learning. Um, you know, the smaller the group, the easier it is that is to build and to work with. Yeah. And one way I like to think about it, if learning in its simplest form is about being wrong, that can be a scary thing. Mm. Uh, To learn is to be wrong. It's to fail forward, I like to say. Mm. And so if I'm in a smaller group, I, especially where I'm building some trust with fellow learners, I'm going to feel a lot safer uh, failing forward with them and actually being wrong in a sense, or changing another way of thinking about learning. Uh, so that safety of, of me as a learner to not be fearful, to feel like I, I, it's okay if I don't have that right answer, um, to take some of that paranoid um, pressure, stress feeling of schooling and being judged and being evaluated out of it, um, really shrinks with group size. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's uh, to, to me, that's the most important thing. Uh, that we do when we shrink the group size.
1: That's great, and 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 I, I like a, a <laughs> phrase that of just uh, being okay with with failing. That, that that's what learning is is about is not knowing, admitting uh, we're inadequate. Um, and I want Scott and Tree to jump in on this. A question that that I have too, and this is something I struggle with, and this would be more towards large group, I guess, is calling on an individual in a classroom um, that you know you have those students they are just terrified, they're anxious, they never wanna be singled out. And like you said, you can take some of that anxiety out of it by having a small group, but maybe just give us a word on trying to engage those students that we know are a little more introverted and a little harder to bring out. Just some some thoughts there.
4: Yeah, so, um, so one way I do that is trying to make sure everyone gets their mouths open as as soon as we're starting to meet right so that they have voice and and when we say that that's um, a power word I know, but it's also about the psychological climate of the environment of, of who we're with. Um, and it also is if as soon as I open my voice with another person, my um, I'm, ap- I'm actually practicing my learning because I'm having to name things and their hearing and even just their facial response is giving me feedback. And so the first thing i'm going to do is have people probably turn in pairs um you know, think about X, take 30 seconds, okay, turn in pairs right away, get people's mouths open. So they feel like, oh, I have something to say. And I see from my partner that I'm, you know, practicing this with um, right away that that part of what I've said was accepted and valued and respected, perhaps. Um, and so even if I'm a very fearful or a very strong introvert, um, I'm feeling some sense of belonging and participation already.
1: That's really good. I like that. Just you are kind of getting them to rehearse before they speak. That's that's some good advice. The tree and Scott, I want you all to, to jump in.
3: Yeah, I um I, I think it's interesting that you just immediately went straight to vulnerability and trust in small groups. Uh and that is, I mean, that's huge for for small groups. Um, how I, I guess I've got two questions for that. You one, I guess, is how do you build that trust quickly? Um, cause we, our Sunday school classes at our church are, they're smaller. They're probably that eight to 12 student range. And we have volunteers come through every, every three months we change teachers. Uh, and it's more discussion oriented. How can those teachers kind of build that trust, um, quickly where students do feel comfortable opening up?
4: Yeah. So building trust, obviously huge topic, you know, lots of wonderful books on it just published in the last 10 years. Um, But for rotating teachers, one thing that builds trust with your learners is that there's a rhythm, um, that they know what to expect. And even though there's maybe a new facilitator, a new leader, they're still going to go through the same, in a sense, rhythm of that hour of Sunday school, for example. So that's one thing that builds trust. Uh, Another is, of course, that uh, meaningful vulnerability. So it's not that the leader comes in and shares their heart about some controversial issue or something, but on the topic that's addressed, whenever the teens are being asked to share recent experiences, the leader also just participates with them as a fellow learner and shares a recent experience that's relevant as well, that kind of thing. Yeah. So again, I think part of the way we build Trust the Fastest is as leaders is to get our mouths closed (laughs) so that other people are finding their voices and then participating as a learner uh, with them in several ways even if we are the expert, you know, one thought.
3: That's great. And then I was going to ask you too, you said the eight to 10 categories, kind of when you start to lose that vulnerability, Um, is there there a a area on the other end of the spectrum where you kind of lose the small group feel, uh, you know, where there's a minimum amount of students that it takes for a small group?
4: Right. Um, Obviously we feel more and more vulnerable if the group gets smaller than five. So I've not seen research on particulars of going to five to four to three, but I can tell you, depending on the type of work that your people are doing and how much they do or don't know each other, um, the difference between three and five is huge um, in how we feel about it emotionally. And so it's just worth considering and just saying, hey, maybe on this, they need five different voices. So we intentionally have five different perspectives when our team's working this issue versus Maybe this topic could be so sensitive um, that they really need to be in pairs, or maybe we need to make sure they don't think they have to collaborate or agree with each other. So we'll put a, a, them in threes, actually, to come up to make sure they're still coming up with multiple ideas um, is a way I think about it. Yeah, kind of based on what's the end goal um, and how, how touchy is the topic, how vulnerable am I asking people to be? And it takes time to break people up and have them come back together again. I know it does. It really slows the lesson down, but it's worth it if it's intentional.
2: So how much does gender play into that? Because I, I notice when I break my students up into small groups, uh, and I, I, my guess is this is probably standard in most ministries, youth ministries, that I've got the guys for maybe 15 minutes before they're just done. But it seems like the girls will will be in their rooms for like forty five minutes, and maybe they're not interacting with the material at all. Maybe they're just chatting. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but but how much how much do you cater questions for for girls, for guys, men, women? Does your approach change when it comes to to gender specific groups?
4: Yeah, Um, most of the groups just in, in that I work with. So my experience there is. Um, Either mixed or women. So I have very little experience just talking to men. Um, I mean, it, it happens, but it's just not regular. So it's interesting. I don't actually think I work things specifically gender-wise um, because of what you're what you're saying. Because of the ability of one group to create that trust more, or to be more comfortable sitting still and just talking. Um, versus having to do something with their hands or moving their body while they're talking, et cetera. Um, So for example, with adults, um, your women will feel more comfortable with a coffee cup in their hands, um, just like your men will. And so sometimes you know, we get teased sometimes when I'm traveling internationally, oh, you Americans, you always have to have a cup of coffee and a donut in your hand in order to (laughs) do anything with the church. I've literally been teased about that. I said, well, actually, theoretically, that actually is very helpful um, because to have our body involved, to have something to do with our hands, uh, et cetera, to break bread. Of course, we could get theological about that, about the donut, uh, which is fun. Um, but that actually helps everybody. So although your women may be more comfortable and socialized um, to be more comfortable in those small groups and just spend a longer time chatting, um, both are, are helped uh, by having things to do with their bodies.
2: In at the same time. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. That's actually really helpful. Uh, one thing that I think has helped us with our, at least our senior high small group is we do a, a dinner at our church on Wednesday nights. And the the wonderful volunteers that we have are our are, are, are staff who are pretty much there all day and they, they help with the meal and then they do the cleanup. So we've actually started getting our small group or our guys small groups uh, to go and, and clean up so that those people can leave. And, and I've noticed that in in doing something together, if, even if we're just like sweeping or like wiping off tables, I'm able to have better conversations there yes. than I was in the small group that we were in just a few minutes before. So I actually really Absolutely. appreciate the, the idea of doing something. Uh, that's helpful.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's that's a good word. That is, look, I I can remember, I mean, it was so much easier to have a student um, to be helping with a project, to be driving, to go pick up something at Lowe's, to, you know, fix something in the youth room and to have that conversation. Than sometimes just, you know, looking at each other in the eyes, there was just something about um yeah adding an activity to it that can foster that so that that's helpful um Tasha I know you talk about just discussion as a as a you know teaching learning method and and I'd love for you to talk about and we've kind of been hinting at some of the the benefits of discussion but then also um talk about some of the limitations uh that can occur when we're having discussion discussion as a teaching time
4: right so discussion you know as a methodology first just Thinking about it that way really helps us because we can say, oh, I've got youth group tonight. I'm going to have an hour and a half, two hours with these teenagers. Okay, what are we going to be doing? What's the design? What am I, you know, by the end of the evening, what am I really hoping to see and hear, right? What's that, to use the technical, what's that learning objective at the end of the evening? What am I hoping to see and hear them actually practice or do or say or emote value, et cetera, et cetera. Um, discussion as one of maybe a thousand methodologies we could choose somehow we think we have to go there so for a lot of us we're probably doing uh, miniature lectures maybe slides maybe watching a video or something and then breaking our group into our people into small groups just with that assumption that okay i have to break them into small groups so that we actually work this harder and i want to say that assumption is is right in a lot of ways What happens when we go into discussion format, especially in a smaller group so that everyone has that accountability to use their voice, to name things, to put words to their experiences and their thoughts, what happens is we actually get a lot of practice and feedback at what we're learning. So as long as the discussion questions are well and we have a good structure for doing required collaborative work again, right? Not just about Q and A, where do you have a right answer? But where we actually have to hear from each other, we have to hear different perspectives. It grows a lot of self-awareness, other awareness, um, grows our uh, ability to be wrong together and learn from each other. Um, so obviously theology would have a lot to say about the body of Christ um, and our need for each other. And the fact that we're embodied and can physically do this work together is significant You know, in a, in a cell phone world. Um, where we can get the right answers very quickly with our cell phones. Um, But it's not about that. It's actually about learning and how deeply am I going to learn something? Um, Pretty much if I talk about it, if I have to talk about it and practice ideas with other people, if I have to relate it to previous experiences, previous knowledge, um, where I get to try and fail. We don't think of that in discussion, but in reality, we're trying and failing and getting feedback. I'm going to learn a whole lot more. Um, so really powerful method, actually, to do with our groups, even though we we tend to not think about it that way.
3: Would you say you're talking about the the kind of the goal and objectives of the, of the night or the group or whatever? Um, would you say that's where uh, small groups or even large groups kind of break down sometimes is there's not really a clear goal? Like maybe the leader hasn't established that beforehand or thought about that beforehand.
4: Right. Yeah, I think. It, one of the biggest mistakes we make in designing our events, an event being anytime we're intentionally doing something and helping uh helping someone move towards Jesus, you know, just to put it broadly, right? We're just hoping they grow towards Jesus. Um, to have a specific goal that's observable, I think is a real key. And that's hard work. We tend to get stuck on the content. And so we'll spend all our preparation time on preparing the content so that we have all the right answers, like about that Bible passage, Uh, instead of spending the time on, boy, if I I see my teens really get this in a new way tonight, I'm going to hear them saying this. I'm going to see them drawing this. I'm going to see these expressions on their faces. I'm going to hear this kind of discussion or hubbub boy, that goes to design. Then it says, Oh, then I need to make sure tonight we create some lists on the board and we do some drawings together and we have some small group discussion time, you know, on an issue. And that really changes how we design the evening. So that is a huge um, issue I would say, Scott. Yeah. Uh,
3: that's great. just having a goal and then envisioning, yeah, the, the questions and conversation that might happen to get there.
4: Right. Well, what does it look like for my kids to actually talk about the, the sinfulness, for example, with this recent youth group I was talking to, the sinfulness and the blessings, according to scripture, of sports in our country, right? I and mean, that's an enormous topic. What is it? But, but you only have an hour and a half with these students. So what does it look like for them to be in a new place when they think and experience sports in this culture um, after an hour and a half? Yeah, mm. What am I going to see? And what am I going to hear? Yeah, yeah
1: that's. That's really good, and it's good It's good for me to hear because I can think so often of, like you just said, about the content of just, okay, putting so much time into the content, making sure you have the scripture references, all this stuff, but to to not really, I guess, enter into the shoes of the students and to try to think of how can we actually help them grasp this instead of just dumping a bunch of information on them, trying to get them to engage with the, the material. So I can often be guilty of that. Um, Tasha, I know you, you talk about some, Just the the good discussion questions um, actually take a lot of careful wording uh, and, you know, that you you have to put a lot of thought in kind of this learning process. And so you give some some wording tips. Uh, I'd love for you to maybe just to highlight a few of those, maybe some of those that you have found to be the most effective, because I know we don't have time to talk about all of them, but maybe just some of those wording tips that can be helpful.
4: Right. Sure. Glad to touch on a couple of these. And usually what I encourage people to do is say you've got half an hour with your small group after a mini lecture or something um, in your weekly youth time is to prep just two or three. That's all it takes is two or three really well worded. And what you're going to have to do is just dump them out first and then you're going to have to rethink what does that look like? What does that sound like in light of my learning objective, that key goal I want them I want them to have or that that thing I, I most want to see my students doing and engaging in? um, and, and you get, you're going to have to rewrite them. I mean, it just takes iteration to really have good questions for discussion. Um, so uh, two of the simplest ones are the questions need to be single. Um, when we dump questions on a page, uh, for our Bible study, our small groups, we tend to string together multiple things at once. We have and statements, but statements or statements um, so just a single. Make sure our question actually only asking for one thing, and then it's straightforward, single, and simple, um, and and is you know um, doesn't have a lot of abstract wording in it. Especially with our teenagers, their brains are new at abstract thinking, and they are going to go there. And we wanted to go there and be able to attach theology and scriptural principles to things, but to make sure we start with concrete. And so, and this, of course, is true for adults as too. Better to start the topic and to start the discussion work with, think of a recent time when, right? So it's actually a think, it's not a discussion question. It's first start with, okay, what was the recent time where you had this experience? Now think about one issue of that experience that is going to be, and then let's go to work, starting on the concrete. So asking a simple, a direct question, um, and then, of course, open and most of us know the whole issue of open versus closed questions. but what's interesting is if you if you, you pinch us, um, most of our questions are closed when they just come off the top of our head. Well we're saying, well, did you think this or this? you know well, oh, there's only or or what is the end like what is the Bible verse that talks about you know as if there's only one uh, right? So we default to closed. so that's something that definitely takes iteration ask, questions that ask for multiple right answers. Because, right, what's the point of a discussion? Well, you want a whole bunch of different perspectives coming in. Otherwise, don't ask it. If you don't want a bunch of different perspectives, then you need to just probably tell something and state something, right? Um, Because if you're worried that you're just going to get a pile of ignorant, um, non-biblical statements as a result, that probably is not a good question, right? We don't want to fear pooling our ignorance, of our learners, what we want is what's the question that we actually need to hear from each other about and, and create a big list of possibilities uh, of answers, if you will, to the question. So um, that, that's a good start um, on my on my list.
3: I, th- I think that's great. Just the, the two or three questions, you know, if they're really thought out and well-worded, um, that could be huge. I'm thinking even with one-on-ones with students. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm just rapid fire asking them closed questions about their lives. And it m- feels a little bit like interrogation maybe. And uh, getting a lot of one-word answers are just kind of short answers. And I think a lot of times that's due to my failure of good questions. And um, it doesn't feel like a good conversation. It feels more one-sided. So that's great.
4: Yeah, I think for most of us, what can really help us is, in a sense, to twist the methodology of question asking and think, okay, if I start with a concrete, like, think of a recent time when or think about what do we already associate with X topic. So, it what either way, we're either pulling on their knowledge that they already bring into the discussion or their experience, and then we say, ooh, let's create a list together, right? Because that makes it very, very safe because we're working together so it's dialogical, it's discussion, even if it's just a one-on-one a mentoring relationship. And we know our job, our goal is to create a list. So it's not about being right or wrong. It's about thinking as many different possible. And then we can go to the list and, and we've got a visual. So maybe we're writing or drawing that can help as well. And then we go to list and say, okay, now when we look at this list, okay, well, and then let's go to this passage and maybe we're going to think about the list and write of light of this passage and get some depth then on the topic. Um, So, you know, in in a course of a half hour discussion, at some point we're probably actually asking ourselves or a group um to create a list. We just don't think of it that way automatically.
2: Yeah. Um so I got I got a question for you. And John, if, if only there was some sort of book that dealt with that question about the sinfulness and blessing of sports, maybe you should get with way into
1: um
2: to get yeah. something about that maybe we can
1: uh, do something about that yeah yeah uh
2: so th- this is a, a question that i wrote down this morning and i've been dying to ask you uh, all day uh, because 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 it this happened last night and and i know this happens to anybody who facilitates any sort of small group discussion is the the distractions that that arise
1: <laughs> yeah. in
2: a small group um so last night in the middle of my small group, I, I look up and one of my students is eating a baked potato like it's an apple, just chomping down on a baked potato. <laughs> and it would usually, I can recover from stuff like that, but it, we, we, we were <laughs> That's lost. Hard. For the
1: rest. That's hard. We,
2: we were lost for the rest of the night because everybody was laughing, and every five seconds, this potato would come back up. How do you handle distractions in a small group? And how do you maybe reel people back in? Uh, and I mean, it, Stuff like that's funny, and it's going to happen. But at some point, we have to move on. And sometimes it's really hard for leaders to be able to get past that distraction.
4: Oh, it is. And I think some of the best things we do first is just name them what they are. Um, obviously, we you know enjoying the humor together um, can build trust. It, it can help build the relationships as long as the humor is kept positive and respectful. And so that's a really good thing to enjoy. Um, and and to say, okay, that was distracting. You know, if we're distracted. I think, you know, just say, okay, that was really distracting. Um, allow the time for people to laugh, to get over it, to say whatever, to add their comments and their snark, <laughs> whatever. Um, that's actually important, right? Because again, um, the relational trust that we're building in the group to so that we can work on hard things together and hold each other accountable to grow uh, is more important than that extra five minutes of content, if you would, or discussion. Um, so the first thing I want to remind us is, hey, relax and enjoy, and, um, and and then literally, I actually tell people, hey, let's round back up to this, and you know, and and give a new question. But um, specifically, um, if I can get them moving, like, okay, let me, you know, have you turn in pairs and work on this, and then let's put our lists up on the board, right. So in a sense, what I'm doing is I'm, uh, because there's been a big distraction, it's no longer a a multi-directional conversation, right? Where people are answering and and even asking each other questions around the group um, to, to get us reset is to give everyone something to do. It's upping the structure technically. So to say, okay, everybody turn in partners, share with each other about this, or look at the verse and for this and get some observations out or something, right? And then, hey, let's go. And then maybe go to the board. Let's write some lists up um, that you come up with your partner or something. So to so that's what I tend to do. I, I've had that happen in my classroom with 25 students where we've had things that just utterly broke me apart. You know? <laughs> and I just couldn't get back. It was hard times, so like, you know. So that's nice. It gives everybody a chance to breathe, but it just gets everybody working, everybody getting their mouths back open. Mm -hmm. Uh, to, to go back to that partner, even if it's just for a minute or
1: two. Yeah. And I've got, I've got to be honest, I'm sitting here fighting this image of a student biting into a potato, like an apple. As you said that I'm sitting here muted, trying not to laugh as I just continue, continue to think of that image. Um, so that's great. Uh, so I, I do want to jump back to, to your questions. I mean, again, you've got a list of just some helpful, um, you know, aspects to to discussions, questions, and something we've mentioned several times is just safe questions and, you know, vulnerability. And and I'd love for you to maybe hone in on that aspect, um, you know, of the, the helpful kind of wording tips that you're talking about. Would you just kind of dig into that a little bit more of examples of safe questions and why that's important?
4: Yeah. So two things about safe questions. Um, one is it's a real issue we actually do lose trust. We actually do raise the fear barrier for learning when we ask a why question. Something that starts with W-H-Y. Um, now, what's interesting is we might want to really work the why issues, but why ask for cause and effect? And, it, and it's a very, um, we associate a lot of judgment and evaluation with an answer to why. It's actually a very complicated question to ask somebody because you're asking them to link cause and effect directly when maybe there isn't. Uh, one and, and certainly not a simple one. So, I, what I train people to do is every time you you ask why, actually rewrite that question immediately that has that word in it, why, and put what are some possible. So, you make it of this very instead of a why, you want, what are some possible. So, you can hear how it's 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 um set far away from the learner now. They're not having to do their own direct, they're not having to say, no, this is what I really think with a lot of emotion. <laughs> um, but they get to just say possible uh reasons. What are some possible reasons that, and now they're free to come up with multiple, which is actually a better thinking process anyway, than to just say, well, you know, why do we why do we sin that way when we're playing soccer, you know, back to our sports and, and uh, blessings and sinfulness. Uh, that's a actually very threatening question. So going from why, and what happens, of course, is in small group, we're going to say why the word why is going to come out of our mouths. Hmm. Um, it's a default word, but to immediately phrase it and say, no, let's build a list. What are some possible reasons? And you'll get much better, much better discussion out of that and much better perspective changing possibilities. Um, so that's a that's a double one, um, the why, and then moving to the what are some possible. Yeah. Get it, get it a little bit further away from your learner, so it feels more like a case study. It's a little bit safer um, for them. Uh,
1: yeah, I like that, and I like again. I mean, just we're continuing on this theme of this takes time you know, that we just kind of have these like knee-jerk responses. And um, I just like how you mentioned the trust factor there, that we're trying to, you know, develop trust in the learning process and, and draw our students out. That's really helpful. Tree, I know you had a question. Yeah. You know,
2: for the parents that are listening, uh, what what kind of advice do you have for, for parents to interact with their students on what they're learning um, in their youth groups at church? Like, I know sometimes parents feel very ill-equipped uh, in these conversations. How How can we help them um, interact with the same material that we're interacting with them on Wednesday nights right. and Sunday nights?
4: Right. It's a great question. In fact, it's a great question for our parents of any age. Um, what happens to us is we default to um, tell me what happened at Sunday school or what did you learn at Sunday school today? Um, and unfortunately, that's a threatening um, recall question. It feels like a quiz to us, and all of a sudden, our fear barrier's gone way up. So it's not discussion anymore. Now I'm just being evaluated based on my short-term memory. Um, so what if if as parents, if we could learn to say, "Oh, tell me a story about. Tell me a story um, about uh, tonight. What what was something that struck you? You know, um, so that it's wide open. It's not evaluative." Um, And maybe we tell a story about what we did the last hour and a half too. Right. Um, And so tell me a story is a much safer place to go. um, than what did you study in youth group tonight? Uh, Tell me a story about that. Or um, when did you, you know, or yeah, just tell me a story about youth group tonight, you know. Um, again, just the idea of can we encourage storytelling and sharing of our experiences? Once you get started on the storytelling, um, then you can probe that story is the technical term, right? You can ask more, oh, and what did that sound like? And what did that feel like? Right? But you got to get into the story first, much safer place to go for our parents.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Um, Tasha, I know uh, we, we need to draw our time to a close and we're just scratching the surface, <laughs> um, but I would love for you just kind of any last remarks, any last thoughts that you have, um, tips, advice. I'm trying to give an open-ended question here. Um, so any anything you want to jump in and share uh, before we close this out?
4: Yeah, I just say keep going. Uh, youth leaders, people with youth, incredibly hard sociological age um, research on it is huge. And so with every drop of compassion, the Lord gives you to ask them a good question and then listen with an enormous amount of empathy, um, is worth so much. Um, we can all look back to our own times as youth. It's a good thing to do if we're feeling extra frustrated with the teenagers in our lives right now. And, uh, remember that older person who asked us a good question and listened with care.
0: Um,
4: And so, yeah, I wish you wish you more power and uh, endurance and strength to continue to ask good questions and really help your youth work the answers way beyond any that we could come up with um, as a group um, to really solve some tough problems about how to live uh, in the places they're living and working and uh, trying to shine Jesus. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, that's an awesome last word. And I love just framing it under uh, the, the idea of compassion, um, that uh, really being compassionate as we're, we're working on these questions to engage students. So, Dr. Chapman, thank you again uh, for your time, taking time to come on the podcast. As I said, you've already been on. We're having you back on. Most likely, we'll have you back on again if you'll come on. So, we uh, appreciate so your thank time. you, John. No, it's,
4: it's just an honor. And uh, obviously, I'm very passionate about these topics. So
1: glad to talk about them. Well, thank you again, and thanks to Tree and Scott for helping out as well.